0: For those of you that are here for the first time, or, or you haven't been here a while, just want to let you know that we are doing a series on God's top ten. It's about relationship, relationship with God, and relationship with our fellow man. The last two messages have been on the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment says, "You shall not murder." The first message covered the meaning in simple form. That the basic fundamental idea of that. Then then we looked at Jesus' expansion and and interpretation that includes what the internal heart is like. It it talked about uh, the hatred or what we had in our heart. And then we related it to contemporary issue number one, capital punishment. The second message that we covered last week was on the abortion dilemma. We sought to answer questions like, who decides questions of life and death? When does life begin? And is the taking of a child's life ever justifiable? We contrasted the opinions of our culture today with what the Bible says. Now, we do not ignore nor remain ignorant of modern science as it relates to unborn life, but our standard for faith and practice is not culture and it's not science, but it's the Bible, the Word of God. And, of course, the interesting thing is the more we learn scientifically, historically, and archaeologically, the more the truth of the Bible is actually confirmed. Can you pull me down just a bit? Just a bit. Today, our third in this series, we're going to attempt to deal with two t- contemporary questions. The first one is war and military service. What does the Bible say? And was what was Jesus' attitude toward the use of force? And number two, did Jesus teach... The law of non-resistance or passivity. Was Jesus a pacifist? Now, I, this is a little bit different um, as, as a message than, than most uh, pastors preach. And I, uh, one of the reasons we wanted to cover this, last Sunday was uh, Veterans Day weekend, and we recognized our veterans. And one of the great things we have to be thankful for is the security and freedoms that we have as a country. And that's largely due to the founding of this country but largely due to those who have served consistently, not only in the military, but those who have served and continue to serve in law enforcement and other areas that keep order in our culture and society. And so I want to talk about what the Bible says about that. And part of this is a thankfulness and a thanksgiving to those who serve in those capacities. Does the sixth commandment you shall not murder, apply to war as well. That's a question we're going to to hope answer today. War is a horrible thing. Those who rush to war are those who have never experienced its horrors. Here in the United States, we have not, not had a war on this continent since the Civil War in the 1800s. Since that time, our wars have been fought in distant lands experienced only by our soldiers and people of other nations. Yeah, we've seen movies about about war on the big screen, Gods and Generals, The Patriot about the Revolutionary War, Saving Private Ryan about World War II. We were soldiers, the Vietnam War. We've even watched the events of the Iraq War, Operation Iraqi Freedom, as reporters who were embedded with our troops sent live reports over satellite feeds. Every day it was the war live from Iraq. But if we were to be honest, most of us, unless having actually served in the military, and many of you here have, we don't have a clue as to what our military is about, let alone do we have much comprehension about what war is about. The only time we think about it is when our armed forces are sent into harm's way like they are in Afghanistan and Iraq and and, and Syria and other places of the world. And then everybody begins to express their opinions, usually based on ignorance or faulty information. I turned age 18 at the height of the Vietnam War and, like many of you here, was faced with the possibility of being drafted into the military. The United States had just instituted a lottery system in which every 18-year-old male was was given a draft number based on their birth date. Their birth date was going to coincide with a lottery number. I was headed to college, and college deferments, those of you who remember this, college deferments were over. They weren't going to do that anymore. They were going to go with the lottery for the draft. And so I was headed to college, and I remember vividly the day that I went to the phone, kind of in trembling, wondering, because you could call this this toll-free number and find out what your number was. And I called. And I've, I decided this ahead of time. I, I thought, you know, if I, if I get a low number that, and I have a high likelihood of being drafted, if you were in the low numbers of the, of the birthday lottery, you, there was a high likelihood that you would be drafted. Then if that was gonna happen, I decided I was gonna join the Navy because my dad had served in the Navy in World War II, I had an uncle who was a captain in the Navy and, and I just thought, Navy, okay. So those of you who have served in the Navy say, yeah. Okay, you, you don't say who that's the Marines, right? Okay. So, I was going to do that. So I discovered my number. It was 359. So likelihood of going in the draft for me was pretty slim. So I decided to enter college and forego military service. And I really knew very little about the military or military life. And I was just kind of living blissfully like everybody does and taking all of those things for granted that, that the military does. Then in 1986... God sent Judy and me to pastor a church in Lakewood, Washington. And over the time we were in Lakewood, Washington, I received some very valuable lessons of what our military was all about. Lakewood was the home of McCord Air Force Base and Fort Lewis, today known as Joint Base Lewis-McChord, JBLM. And being close to two major military installations brought many military to our church, both enlisted and officers. And we probably had 60 plus percent of our congregation at any one time were military. Military. Well, I spent a great deal of time on base and on post getting to know some of the greatest leaders in America, military men and women who had chosen a career and occupation that called on them to lay their life on the line to protect our country and our freedoms. And much of their time in combat zones was to promote or protect other countries' freedoms. I gained a whole new appreciation, perspective, and a respect for the military as my eyes were opened. Well, today we're going to look at not my opinion or someone else's opinion about the military. We're gonna look at the Bible's perspective on the war, military service, and non-resistance as it relates to Exodus 20.13. Exodus 20.13 says, you shall not murder. This is the third in the series on the Sixth Commandment. We're going to start with war and military service, Roman numeral one. Dr. John Ismaud, his lecture on war and military service, begins with this question. He asks, why is it that the people in America, by and large, serve the country in a time of war, but when there's a peace movement, its leaders are predominantly Christian clergy? There's been a peace movement during every major war, and many of the leaders have been clergy or pastors, the exception one exception that we know of was the Revolutionary War. And you study the history of the Revolutionary War, you discover that many pastors of churches, many clergymen, were officers in the army and they served with their people. And they served alongside because they believed in the war for independence in, that country, in our country. Well, the question is not what is culture's opinion and what is my opinion, the question is, what is God's opinion? How does God view war and military service? How does God's word command military preparedness? And does God's word command pacifism? Pacifism. Remember, as we look at this, all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Let me say that again. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. The examples are self-defense. Maybe killing, but it's, it's not considered murder. Law enforcement in difficult situations where they have to carry out something. Capital punishment. They're, these are instances where, where killing is not considered murder by the Bible. Now, many are confused about where murder stops and legitimate war begins. And those are questions we have to ask. We're in, a war, we're in some wars overseas right now. We're facing some very difficult things. It's important that we understand this whole concept as related to the sixth commandment. We're going to start with five basic biblical principles, five biblical principles. The first one is letter A. Just warfare is at times a legitimate exercise of national policy. Just warfare is at times a legitimate exercise of national policy. Now there's a distinction between national defense and individual defense. Collective defense and individual defense. In Ecclesiastes 3.8 it says there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. Then we look at Isaiah 2.4. It says, they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is Isaiah's description of the millennium, the future millennium, when Jesus returns and, and reigns on, the, er, on earth. That's, that's future. But it shows that historically there was a time that swords were needed. Justifiably so. That swords were needed. When we look at Matthew, the book of Matthew, uh, chapter twenty-four, we read about wars and rumors of wars in the last days, and and we know that war is going to be with us. Matthew twenty-four. I mean, Jeremiah six and eight talk about the leaders who are condemned by God for crying peace and and peace when there is no peace. What does that mean? It means that war is going to be happening all around us, especially in the last days, and it's wise to be prepared. It's wise to be prepared. To know that war is going to be happening now all throughout the old testament we find wars and battles commanded by god always in self-defense israel is attacked by enemies seeking her destruction or god orders the destruction of an enemy in order to preserve the nation of israel because it was through israel that the messiah jesus was going to come and it said satan incited enemies of israel time and again trying to destroy because satan had a clue that somehow the messiah the predictive Messiah is going to come. And that's why we are here today, because the Messiah came. We'll be celebrating some of that later today. Many times it says Satan incited evil nations to destroy Israel. Now, the key is that just warfare is at times legitimate. Now, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Letter B, letter B, a strong defense deters aggression and helps preserve peace. A strong defense it deters aggression and helps preserve peace. In Luke 11, 21 to 22, it says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his spoils. Now this passage has to do with Satan and his power. No question, he's talking about the demonic trying to overpower the kingdom of God. But Jesus uses an example that people of have his day will understand. It's the, the principle of deterrence. Deterrence. If you are stronger than your enemy, he won't likely attack. If you are better armed, he won't likely attack. Um, let's, let's skip the video thing, okay? Let's just go on to the thing. I want to read Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4, uh, 7 to 18. Nehemiah 4, 7 to 18. This is a situation in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel had to get military or be militarily prepared. It says, When, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that repairs of Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, that they were very angry, they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night. Basically, the enemies were trying to stop them from rebuilding Jerusalem. And as, as Nehemiah was, was tasked, he said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Will, and fight for your brothers, your sons and daughters, and your wives and your homes. He says, when our enemies heard that we are aware of their plot, we returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, this is, this is what they did. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. What was this? talking about. They were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The, the enemy was trying to destroy them and stop them. And, and Nehemiah practices the force of deterrence as a legitimate policy. He posted people that could deter the attack. Military preparedness for aggression. Then the enemy was deterred. That's something that happens, and we understand that, that we've, we've been in a standoff for many, many years because of the deterrence, primarily of nuclear weapons. But basically, that's kept America safe. It's kept the whole Western Hemisphere safe. Deterrence. A strong defense deters aggression. Letter C. Refusing to fight for one's country can be a sin against God. When the nation of Israel was to enter Canaan to take the land by military force, two tribes, Reuben and Gad, wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan River and occupy that land. And if we join them in in Numbers 32... Numbers 32, it says the Reubenites and Gadites who had very large herds and flocks saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they said, we want to stay over here. And he said, if we found favor in your eyes, let, we, let us be in this land. And Moses said to the Gadites and Reubenites, shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? What is that all about? This is a unique instance in which the lack of involvement of a whole group of people would discourage the other people, and it would undermine the strength. And in this particular instance, okay, this is controversial, it doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, but any, anything that we do to discourage unity or bring disunity could be, could be a sin in God's eyes. Now, there's a degree of subjectivism here. Um, we have something in the United States law, and we have something called conscientious objectors. And it's very legitimate, people that do not want to go. Uh, there's a movie out recently that, was t- that showed a guy who basically uh, ended up being a medic. He didn't want to fight, but he would save lives. Many, many different ways. But there are ways that we can support our nation in, in that. Then we have letter D. The Sixth Commandment does not prohibit just warfare. Now, the Hebrew used in Exodus 20.13 uses the word kill or murder, which means intentional and premeditated. When we get to Matthew 5.21, Jesus addresses the prohibition against murder and uses the Greek word phoneo, says you shall not murder. So phoneo is used for murder in the New Testament Greek. And then when you get to Revelation 9.15, 18, 11.7, and 19.21, The word for kill is apoktino, which means to kill in the context of war or military battle. There's a differentiation between the murder and killing in battle. And so the New Testament makes a distinction between those two parts. The New Testament Greeks makes that, and also the Old Testament makes a distinction between murder and killing in self-defense. So it's important that we understand that the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit just warfare. Let me read the words, actions, and character of Jesus are consistent with just warfare. The words, actions, and character of Jesus are consistent with just warfare. Some people don't recognize this, this fact, but I want to read John 2 13 to 16. John 2, it says. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of the temp- from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and to those who sold doves he said, Get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered, it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's not the Jesus we think about very often, do we? This was Jesus cleansing the temple by force, by making a whip, and he drove them out of the temple. It's a jarring contrast. You know, We like to think of this gentle, loving Jesus. That's who we like to think about. But Jesus was also, and is also, God. When we read Revelation 19.11, we read that, that he also, is going to display force at the end of his ministry. And we're not gonna read that, but you can refer to it as you do. It's, it's the end times when Jesus comes down on, on a white horse and he judges the nations and he destroys his enemies. Jesus began his ministry in John 2 with force. He's gonna end it with force. The gentle Jesus and the force forceful Jesus. You see, he's God. Jesus is God. He's love, justice, he's gentle and violent all at the same time. See, we can't have just the parts of God that we like. People would say, didn't Jesus come to earth to bring peace? Yeah, he, did. he came to bring peace, internal peace and total peace in the future. He did not advocate conflict, but he didn't shrink from conflict. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said this. He said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his household. Now, what is that all about? What does he mean by that? What it means is that when someone is loyal to Jesus, sometimes it may cause conflict with those who are not loyal to Jesus. Those who are against it. He knows it's going to happen, and it did. And so, and we see all throughout the world, people who are committed to Jesus Christ, sometimes the enemies are those even in their own household. And he said it was going to happen. Conflict. There's a difference, however, between individual and national conflict. The key word is just just warfare. Now, on the flip side, the interesting thing is that Jesus who was God and he could do whatever he wanted to, It said he could have called 10,000 angels or legions of angels to rescue him, he submitted himself to be crucified because he was doing God's will and giving his life for others. That was sacrifice. It wasn't pacifism. It was legitimately laying down his life for us. That's the difference, it's sacrifice. And men and women have done the same on the battlefield for you and for me. You can go anywhere in this country and you find white tombstones all over this country. You can find memorials. Those were not pacifists. Those were sacrificial sacrifices. Those are sacrifices of men and women giving their lives so that we could live in this world in freedom sacrifice and we're going to talk in a minute about jesus command to turn the other cheek we'll talk about that so did jesus support the military and believe it was a legitimate occupation some people will say well you know he he really wasn't for that well in the new testament we have two accounts of two soldiers both of them were roman centurions roman centurions the first one we find in matthew 8 the story where a roman centurion came to jesus and said my servant is sick He's going to die unless you come and heal him. And Jesus healed his servant. He actually, the the, the amazing amazing thing about that story, that's where the, the centurion said, you don't have to come to my house. I'm a man under authority. I know when I say this, it gets done. When I say this, it gets done. All you have to do is say the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. And Jesus looked at this Roman centurion, a soldier, and said, I've not found such great faith in all of Israel. Roman centurion. Then we find in Acts 10, one of the most interesting stories, there was a centurion named Cornelius. We actually get his name. And Peter was told to go share the gospel with him in his, in his household. And Cornelius was the first among the Gentile converts, and the first Gentile church was started in the home of a Roman soldier, Cornelius. It's significant. Very significant. There's no record that Jesus told these centurions that their life was wrong. You really shouldn't serve in the military. Adulterers, he said, go and sin no more. Thieves, he said, go and make restitution. The rich young ruler, he said, sell all you have and follow me. The centurions were never told to repent of their military service and leave the Roman army. Why? Because Jesus saw military service as an honorable profession. It was honorable, the same as we should or ought and do. Many leaders in the Old Testament were warriors. Abraham led commando raids. There was Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Jonathan, Gideon, Nehemiah, Josiah, all were great warriors. Now John Aidsmo says, not all warfare is just. Okay, let's, let's admit that. Not all warfare is just. War is not a positive good. It's not a positive good. But sometimes God allows or even uses warfare to accomplish his, to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes the evil of warfare outweighs the alternative. So when is war just? How do we evaluate that when we see these things happen? How do we evaluate whether war is just? Whole whole books have been written on the justice of war, and I can't answer all the questions this morning. I hope to give you just a few thoughts. Is war a biblical option in certain circumstances, and can a Christian serve in the military? I hope we've answered those two questions in the affirmative. Let's move on to the principles of just warfare. And it's important because... Every day, our political leaders, our commander in chief, our generals, are making decisions about war. They're making decisions every single day. How do they they process that? And how do we pray for them to make the right decisions? It's absolutely critical that we understand. How do we reconcile the Jesus of force and the Jesus the suffering servant? It's not either or, but it's both and. Now, when we talk about justification for war, these are just few things, and sometimes it's not just one, but it's several of these things that go into that. And I can guarantee you, when I talked to the military officers that we got to know personally at Fort Lewis, we had long discussions about when do we go to war? What are the justifications for war? How does, how does this happen? What, what's the moral... Well, it's a moral imperative for war. How how do we know? I'm just going to give a few today. Letter A, number one, is legitimate authority. Legitimate authority. Our Constitution has outlined the proper authority needed to enter a conflict or war. The President, as Commander-in-Chief, has certain parameters in which to operate. Then must consult Congress to obtain a declaration of war. And if you follow the news, you find out that there are certain executive actions a president can have. But if you enter into war, you need an actual declaration by Congress. There's legitimate authority for that. And it must have legitimate authority for it to be technically legal and to be moral or right. The United States has also, interestingly, has also submitted itself to certain United Nations resolutions, which has given impetus for certain actions as well. Now that's a whole different thing, but but that's that's something that we have, have worked with, etc. Letter B is just cause. There must be just cause. Clear examples are Nazi Germany in World War II. They were slaughtering people. The Gulf War, when Iraq invaded our ally Kuwait, we had an, we had an alliance with, with Kuwait, said, we'll protect you. And so we had a just cause. We had to take, take it. The Iraq War was instituted because Saddam Hussein had been committing atrocities using chemical weapons. They found over 300,000 corpses of people that he had slaughtered over a period of 20 years. There was just cause. Then there has to be just intent. The intentions of the war are to advance good and deter evil. Advance good and deter evil. In World War II, as Nazi aggression. When it came to the Korean War, it was to deter communist aggression and subjugation. The Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan, the intention is not to take over Iraq or Afghanistan, but to stabilize it and turn it over to its people. How well has it worked? Well, we don't know yet. That's, that's the thing. But I can guarantee you that, that our Soldiers and our military people are constantly weighing these things and saying, are we succeeding in our mission? Because our goal was to provide better good. There has to be a just cause. Letter D, last resort. Last resort. War is the only way to right or wrong. In other words, there's no other way to do it. And for for terrorists, the only understanding is one language, and that's force. We find political solutions. Peaceful negotiations, and war should be absolutely the last resort. Letter E, self-defense. Self-defense. There has to be clear precedent, and it may be preemptive self-defense. So it's just harder to predict. And here's where the water gets clouded. We have to say, from what we know, it's self-defense. I know that we would have never attacked Afghanistan or Al-Qaeda if it were not for the attack on 9-11. Just war. Letter F, proportionality. Proportionality. The human cost of war is less than the human cost of not going to war. The human cost of war is less than the human cost of not going to war. Tyrants are stopped. Human lives are lost, but more human lives are spared. Imagine Europe with Hitler in charge. Just imagine that for a moment. One of the reasons we dropped the atomic bomb in Japan, where I was born, numbers of years later, was because they felt it would save lives because the war would end sooner, and that's why that was justification. They justified that. Who wants to make those decisions? That is tortuous to make those kinds of decisions. Imagine the Middle East with a Hussein in charge, and then we can, of course, we can see North Korea with Kim Jong-un in charge. I'll tell you, if, if, if you can do one thing, if you're praying for one thing, pray for Korea. Um, the largest percentage population in the world of any one country is South Korea. They estimate 60 to 65% are active, uh, very passionate, involved, and engaged Christians. The largest churches in the world are in South Korea. You know what they do and excel at more than anything else? They pray. Intercessory prayer. You go to a prayer meeting. Chose churches like three hundred to five hundred thousand people. They get together and when they say, Let's pray, there's a thunder of 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 sound as people cry out to God. South Korea is crying out to God. We need to join them and pray. I believe, I do not believe we're gonna have a have a a military conflict with North Korea. I believe that God is gonna break down those walls and God is gonna reunite North and South Korea through an abrogation and some kind of miraculous intervention only because South Koreans and God's people are praying. Pray, that is the the worst place for Christians to be. The persecution is unbelievable and we must pray for them. I know the military options, it's just like, oh, it's unthinkable, what would happen? The main issue, an attack on North Korea might free the world of a brutal dictator, free millions of people from virtual slavery, but Seoul, South Korea would would pay a horrendous price. I believe we'll see, remember when the Berlin Wall came down in East Germany and West Germany we were united, all those things that happened. Those did not happen. They, the detente happened because of military strength, deterrence. But it was because God's people were praying and interceding, whether it's Romania, whether it's Poland, whether it's uh, East Germany. People were praying and interceding, and we must intercede for North and South Korea today. Every day, pray every day. So proportionality. Now let's look at number three, the law of non-resistance. How do we reconcile the Jesus of force and Jesus the suffering servant? How do do we we get through that? Like I said, it can't be either or, but it's got to be both and. Now the passage of scripture that's quoted for passivity or pacifism is Matthew 5, 38 to 39. I want to unpack it just a bit says, you have heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This passage does not have to do with physical aggression. It has to do with insult. Insult. There was a way that you could insult somebody. If you slapped them with the, this side of the hand, it was one thing. If you slapped them with the back of the hand, it was 10 times worse. And he's talking about, that kind of, a, of, an, of an insult and a challenge, and he says, "Turn the other cheek." He says, he talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, we talked about this two weeks ago. The Lex Talionis, Lex Talionis was instituted um, not to exact re- punishment but to limit revenge. We talked about it's going to be an eye and an eye for, and a tooth for a tooth. Um, F. F. Bruce in the book. Uh, hard sayings of Jesus, writes this. This is one of a number of examples by which Jesus shows that the, the lifestyle of the, of the kingdom of God is more demanding than what the law of Moses laid down. It says, it marked a great step forward and imposed a strict limitation on the taking of vengeance. Vengeance. It replaced an earlier system of justice. Uh, basically, if you had uh, tribe X, a member of tribe X that, that damaged or hurt somebody from tribe Y, then basically what would happen, tribe Y would be under obligation to take vengeance on tribe X. And this led to a blood feud between the two tribes, and, and it, it led to injury and suffering far beyond the first, first issue, the original injury. So incorporated into, into Israel's law code was a principle of exact retaliation. In other words, one eye, no more, for an eye. One life, no more, for a life. McNeil says this is a restriction on unrestrained vengeance. It limited revenge by fixing an exact compensation for an injury. Now, what Jesus describes is another way to end a feud, whether it's an insult, a slapping of the back of the hand, which is considered twice as insulting, or another affront. Verse 39, it says, Do not resist him who is evil. Does not mean passivity in the face of evil, it's not passivity means don't retaliate, don't retaliate in like way. There's a difference between returning insult for insult, however, and legitimate self-defense. Jesus insists that a disciple should be ready to suffer loss rather than resort to personal vindictiveness, vindictiveness. Aidsmo says there's a difference between the individual right of resistance and the collective. Right of resistance. In other words, if I'm attacked, I can choose not to resist. But if my wife and children are attacked, I must defend them. This applies to our community, and it applies to our nation as well. Our nation. A.T. Robertson says, One thing certainly meant by Jesus is that personal revenge is taken out of our hands. Aggressive or offensive war by nations is also condemned, but not necessarily defensive war or defense against robbery and murder. He said professional pacifism may be mere cowardice. I want to conclude this section by a quote from Joy Davidman. Joy Davidman was a a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. She wrote the book Smoke on the Mountain. And this is how she addresses pacifism. She writes, we cannot help recognizing in the peace at any price slogan an effort of our enemies to turn us into the perfect murderere. Surrender, we know, would solve nothing, would only abandon the world to the horrors and massacres of a peace as bad as any war. We know that in the end we may have to fight. Make no mistake about it, violence is here to stay squeamishness about physical force is not virtue. Our Lord implied as much when he classed spiritual nastiness, spite and contention and vindictiveness along with murder. We do not make a better world by training the fight out of our little boys. We only make a more cowardly one, a world of murderes inviting the murderer. Many moderns interpret the sayings of our Lord as counsels for pacifism, forbidding us to ever kill at all. They take such remarks as turn the other cheek out of context and they easily can be made over into the Eastern doctrine of non-resistance, so appealing to tired men. Yet remember that Jesus said, thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill. Elsewhere he spoke as if the use of force could be lawful. He came not to bring peace, but a sword. He praised the Roman centurion whose sword brought order. He scourged the money changers out of the temple. He, what he forbade then was not violence, but self-seeking violence. Not anger, but being angry without cause. He laid upon us the duty of protecting the weak, and it is obviously impossible to do that without sometimes having to fight the strong. Perhaps Jesus is admired as pacifist chiefly by those who have ceased to believe in him as God. In the final analysis, as we conclude today, all we can say is that according to the Bible, there are legitimate uses of force. And military service is both biblical and honorable. And those who are called to use force, whether they're soldiers or police officers, all law enforcement. They're acting as agents of our government to promote order, peace, and well-being. Jesus was not against the use of force. In fact, he allowed force to crucify him where they committed murder against God so that we could be saved. Jesus did not resist when it was the Father's will to not resist. It's much easier to understand and comprehend in a collective or national sense than an individual sense. But Jesus surrendered all his rights, even his right to self-defense, in order to accomplish a higher good, salvation for mankind. We must also ask that, what is God's will? And will my actions accomplish good beyond myself? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us some examples. We don't have all the answers. We still have a lot of questions, and that's okay. I pray, God, that you would challenge us to think clearly. Father, we have many men and women of God who are required on a daily basis to use some form of force in order to keep order, to protect the weak, to protect us from evil, And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to have a balanced perspective to understand and support them. Father, thank you that we have days like Veterans Day that we can celebrate those who serve in the military, those who have served. Father, those who have given their life as a sacrifice so that we could live in peace. And I pray that we'll never take that for granted. Father, I pray that you give us clear thinking when it comes to the taking of life, human life and understand the differences. And understand that, that someday you will rule and reign. And there will be no more death. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. Because Jesus, you will be in, in control of it all and we'll live in a, in a perfect environment. But until that time, God, we pray for wisdom We pray for insight. I pray that you'll help us to support those. I pray for the protection of our our military as they are in active duty right now. We pray, Lord Jesus, for our law enforcement. Every single day they leave a house with family and they don't know what's going to happen to them. And we see all over this country those who give their life for us. And Father, may we never forget And that's why we are remembering you today. Jesus, you gave your life, the ultimate sacrifice, so that we we could have salvation, that we could live in peace and harmony, and we could have eternal life. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us as we remember that today. In Jesus' name.